If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. This morning, we continue in our study of this book, and we still find ourselves in this interlude, this parenthesis, if you will, in the book, this interlude in the vision that is comprised of chapters 12 through 14. In chapter 12, we were introduced to the enemy of God's people, Satan. He was depicted as a dragon, a dragon who unsuccessfully sought to devour the Christ child. Being unsuccessful of that, he made war with the angels in heaven and was roundly defeated and cast down from heaven to earth and then makes war on the earth. And as he makes war on the earth, his focus, his enemy on the earth is the church. The church was symbolized first in chapter 12 with a woman, the mother who gives birth to the Christ child, the community of faith that gives birth to the Christ child. And then the church is depicted as her other offspring to whom the dragon now sets his sights on. The end of chapter 12, this dragon was standing on the sand of the sea. And why? Because it is from the sea that the dragon will call forth one of his greatest tools in his enemy, in his war against the church, and that is this beast that comes forth from the sea. This person who is elsewhere called Antichrist. And this is the one to whom we are introduced in chapter 13. Chapter 13 can be divided into two sections. We'll cover one of those this morning. The first 10 verses introduces us to this beast that comes from the sea, who is called Antichrist. And the remainder of chapter 13 will introduce us to a beast that comes from the earth who we will later see is called the false prophet. These two beasts in chapter 13, along with the dragon from chapter 12, comprise what Bible scholars call the unholy trinity, mirroring the holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This unholy trinity is comprised of the dragon, who is Satan, the beast from the sea who is Antichrist, and the beast from the earth who is the false prophet. So let's read from God's word and see what John sees and hear what John hears as the dragon calls forth this beast from the sea. This is God's word, Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. The feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. 
And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, we know that every single jot and tittle of your word is inspired by you. It is your breath, and it is profitable to us in some way. And so, God, we ask that you would profit this church from your word this morning. May your word, attended to by your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, be driven deep into our soul, not just so that we would have a better understanding of what this passage may mean, but so that we would be different because of it. And Father, that we'd be prepared for whatever trials and tribulation, and yes, whatever suffering you ordain for our lives, that we would endure and remain faithful to the end. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 13, these first 10 verses, if you're taking notes, can be divided into uh, four different parts. And we're going to follow through these, <clears throat> these 10 verses, um, kind of following this outline. In the first uh, couple of verses, verses 1 through the first half of verse 3, we see a description of this beast what he looks like, what he says, what his nature is. From the second half of verse 3 through verse 4, we see a response to the beast. How do the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, respond to the revealing of this beast, whoever he is? Verses 5 through 8, we see the actions of the beast, what he does, what he says. And then in verses 9 and 10, we find a warning and an exhortation to the saints based on the existence of this beast. So let's look at each one of these. First, a description of the beast. In verse 1, we're told that he comes up out of the sea. And we're meant to presume that the dragon at the end of chapter 12, who is standing on the sand of the sea, is the one who calls forth this beast out of the sea. In fact, we even said that in some translations, the end of chapter 12 is actually the beginning of chapter 13. 
I think, based on the best manuscripts, it fits best at the end of chapter 12. But it really does tie the two together. The dragon standing on the sands of the sea because he's the one who calls forth this beast who comes up out of the sea. So then John tells us what he looks like. He's got ten horns and seven heads, which is exactly the same as the description of the dragon in chapter 12, except that there it was reversed. In chapter 12, we're told that the dragon had seven heads and ten horns. Here, it's reversed again, and the beast from the sea has ten horns and seven heads. And so right off the bat, we see a distinct connection between the dragon, who is Satan, and this beast. Also like the dragon, this beast has diadems. Now, diadems are just basically their crowns is what they are. They're crowns. And the dragon in chapter 12 had crowns, but his crowns were on his head. That's usually where you put crowns, but not with this beast. This beast, his crowns, his diadems are on his horns, his ten horns. And we're told later in chapter 17, when we get there, that these ten horns that have the ten crowns are symbolic of ten earthly kings who will fight with the beast along with their armies. And so this beast has crowns on his horns, not on his head, because he has something else on his heads. And we're told in verse 2 that on his heads are blasphemous names. Now the word blasphemous means slander against God, disrespect against God, speech that slanders God in an effort to bring him down to our level and exalt oneself up to his level. And we're not told what these blasphemous names are, but the fact that these blasphemous names are put on the seven heads of this beast tells us that they are central to this beast's character and purpose. That this beast exists to blaspheme and slander and disrespect God. Verse 2 goes on to describe what else John saw about this beast. We're told that he's like a leopard, that his feet are like a bear's feet, and that his mouth is like that of a lion. And again, we're not to paint this literal picture of what that might look like in our, in our mind's eye, but instead to understand what is the symbolic intent behind that. And all three of those animals we know are apex predators, infamous for their strength and their ability to kill. And so already we see highlighted about this beast that he exists to slander and disrespect God and that he is fierce and powerful and skilled at killing. And therefore, he is to be feared by the earth dwellers. We're also told at the end of verse 2 that the dragon gave the beast his power. So this dragon is standing on the sea that calls forth the beast. He gives the, drag, the, the beast his power. And we're told he gives him his throne and his authority. And so this beast, this antichrist as we'll call him, is empowered by Satan. He gets his power and his strength from Satan. And Satan also gives him, we're told, his throne and his authority. Now, if you're thrown by the fact that Satan has a throne, 
No pun intended there. Um, Satan does have a throne, but we shouldn't be uh, taken by surprise by that because his throne is one of evil. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world, meaning that Satan is the ruler of the world system, the secular, godless system that wants to slander God. The Pharisees referred to Satan in the gospel accounts as Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. Paul calls him the God of this age and the prince of the power of the air, highlighting that he has been given a measure of authority in this fallen world. And so Satan has a throne, but it is a throne of evil. And he gives his throne and the authority that comes with that throne to this beast. Now that's very important because it tells us that one of the primary weapons that Satan is going to use in making war against the saints, against the church, is this beast. And so it's going to be very important that we think carefully about who this is. And we seek to identify and see what or who does he represent in the world. The last part of this first section giving us a, a description of the nature and the appearance of the beast is found in the first half of verse 3. There we're told that the beast has a mortal wound on one of his heads. But the surprising thing is that that mortal wound is healed. Mortal means as unto death. But this mortal wound that is unto death has been miraculously healed. This is intentionally reminiscent of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, too, was mortally wounded, as we know, at Calvary, at his resurrection. But his mortal wound was healed three days later when he rose from the dead, when he resurrected from the grave. And so the fact that this beast also has a mortal wound, and his mortal wound is also subsequently healed is intended to show us that this beast is a counterfeit Christ. He is a counterfeit Messiah, which highlights his deceptiveness, the, the deceptiveness of his nature, that he seeks to set himself up as God. He seeks to set himself up as Messiah. He's a counterfeit Messiah, though. But the response that we'll see to him, which we'll look at next, fits with what we would expect a response to be of one who appears to be a Messiah figure. He is marveled at, honored, followed, feared, and he is worshipped. But before we get to the response to the, the, the beast, having now unpacked this description in these first few verses of chapter 13, Let's take a stab at seeing if we can identify who this is. We mentioned at the outset that he is Antichrist. But we should note that we don't find the word Antichrist here. And neither, by the way, do we find the word Antichrist anywhere in the entire book of Revelation. Now, you might see it in your copy of the Scriptures as a, as a subheading over parts of the passages, 
but it's not in the text. The word Antichrist is not found in the entire book of Revelation. In fact, the only books in the entire Bible where we find the words Antichrist are in the first and second letters of John, first and second John. And those descriptions of Antichrist are remarkably consistent with the description that we see of this beast in Revelation 13 and in the remainder of Revelation, as well as the description of one who is referred to as Antichrist elsewhere in Scripture, both in the New Testament and the Old. For example, in, in those first two letters of John, First and Second John, he's referred to specifically as Antichrist. There, the focus is on his ability to deceive the church through false teaching. That's the theme, that's the focus of First and Second John, that there are false teachers of whom the church ought to be aware of and look out for. But the picture of Antichrist in those first two letters of John is not so much that of a single individual person as much as it is a description or a picture of the spirit of Antichrist that has been in the world is in the world now, and will continue to be in the world until the end of the age. Let me give you a couple examples. 1 John 4, verse 3. John writes, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so that's not talking there about a single individual but a spirit of Antichrist, or we might say a type of Antichrist, or one who embodies or an embodiment of what it means to be Antichrist. The word Antichrist is, simply means against Christ. It means to oppose Christ. And so John is speaking here of the spirit of those who would oppose or be against Christ. And he says that this spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. It's already here. Another example, 1 John 2, verse 18. John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So here, Antichrist is plural. John says that there are many antichrists that have already come. Paul also refers to the antichrist uh, most uh, infamously in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but um, he also does not use the word antichrist. There he refers to antichrist as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. I want you to listen to Paul's description of the antichrist. This is a lengthy quote from 2 Thessalonians 2, but it's helpful for us to understand this picture of the one who's being described for us in this beast coming from the sea in Revelation 13. Here's what Paul writes about this same person. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In, in other words, he's talking there about false teaching. Be wary of that. Be wary of those who say that, that, that it's come. 
Be wary of false teaching. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, what is restraining this man of lawlessness now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Paul says. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the, lawlessness one, the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, in other words, in response to that, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that, may, that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, there is a lot there, far too much for us to unpack all of it this morning. But for the sake of identifying who Antichrist is, there's a couple of things in that passage from 2 Thessalonians that we can draw from Paul's description. The first is that Antichrist will set himself up as God. He will set himself up to be worshipped. Paul says of him that he will set himself up in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, so that he was worshipped. And that's part of what we'll see in the response of the earth dwellers to this beast. He will be worshipped. Secondly, even though Paul talks about a, a current sense in which this lawless one is restrained now, still, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work it's already happening in the world today which is in accord with what john writes in first and second john that we just read from and then thirdly uh, we learn that this lawless one is animated and empowered by satan himself which is also consistent with what we just read from verse 2 of chapter 13 of revelation so uh, John talks about Antichrist in First and Second John. Paul talks about Antichrist in Second Thessalonians. Jesus himself talks about Antichrist. He talks about the Antichrist in what scholars call the Olivet Discourse, one of his last sermons before he ended his earthly ministry, recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. There, Jesus describes the Antichrist, not using that word, but he describes him as, quote, the abomination of desolation. And those words are directly from Daniel's prophecy. The abomination of that which is desolate. The abomination that desolates. Uh, this is directly from Daniel's Old Testament background for this vision in Revelation chapter 37. 
we have this vision that Daniel the prophet is given of four beasts, not one, but four beasts that come up out of the sea. And each of those four beasts represents a kingdom. The first beast represents the Babylonian Empire. The second, the Medo-Persian Empire. The third represents the Greek Empire. And the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. And while the Antichrist is really a compilation of all four of those beasts, he is most closely associated with that fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire. Based on this, many have concluded that Antichrist is not so much a person as he is a world power or an empire or a secular world system of evil. But the very next chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, the prophet is given a vision of a little horn that rises up. And this little horn is symbolic of a king that rises up. Prophecy of a king who will rise up. And most Bible scholars agree that this little horn is later fulfilled by a Greek king from the Seleucid Empire around about 2nd century before Christ who went by the name of Antiochus IV. Now Antiochus IV Um, through a series of different circumstances, gets fed up with Jerusalem, enters into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and sacrifices a pig in the temple of Yahweh, sets up a temple in God's temple to Zeus, and then he takes on the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Instead of Antiochus IV, he takes on the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes basically means God manifest. And so he takes on the name Antiochus God manifest and requires the worship of Zeus in the temple of God. So many Bible scholars see in him the embodiment of the spirit of Antichrist. And so at least in his case, Antichrist is not so much a world empire as he is an actual person, an individual. But the spirit of Antichrist in Daniel, which, again, most scholars will agree is best fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century before Christ, finds later fulfillment in the Olivet Discourse as Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, which, while it points backwards to Antiochus Epiphanes, we go back and read Jesus' Olivet Discourse, he's clearly also pointing forward, and I believe he's pointing forward just a few more years after he dies to 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed by who? The Roman Empire. And so follow along the kind of the course of events here. In Daniel chapter 7, Antichrist is an empire. In Daniel chapter 8, Antichrist is a person, Antiochus Epiphanes. In the Olivet Discourse, that same one that is spoken of in Daniel 8 is now spoken of as an empire again, the Roman Empire. And then Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, as I read it, he, I conclude that Paul is referencing not an empire, but a person, the man of lawlessness. So it's my conclusion that the Antichrist while representative of evil world empires 
of the past, present, and the future who deny Christ and attack the church. Antichrist also finds expression in individuals who deny Christ, set themselves up as God, and persecute the church. And I'm sure you're aware that there have been a veritable plethora of suggestions as to who Antichrist is throughout history. Again, for centuries, many believed it was Antiochus Epiphanes, and that was him, and everything points back to him. But then Emperor Nero came along, and then everyone said, no, that's him. That's the Antichrist, Emperor Nero. Many throughout church history have said that the head of the Roman church, the Pope, is the Antichrist. Many reformers said that, including Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others, and for a variety of reasons. There have been many other notable figures throughout history who have been said to have been the Antichrist, Hitler, Napoleon, and we could go on. But while the spirit of Antichrist may have been working some of these individuals, and thus the prophecies about Antichrist certainly would then find partial fulfillment in some of these individuals throughout history, I believe that Scripture is pointing forward to an eschatological figure who will make all of these other potential Antichrists pale in comparison. So just as we said the time of the tribulation, we've been talking about the tribulation in Revelation, that it is both now and not yet, right? That the church is experiencing trial and tribulation, suffering and persecution today. But in the same sense, there is a, there is a time of persecution, a time of tribulation that is coming in the future of which Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, such as has not been from the beginning of time. And so uh, the tribulation, however we frame that, is both now and not yet. I believe that that could also be said of the Antichrist. That Antichrist is also now and not yet, whether as a world empire or as an individual, Antichrist is now. He is at work in the world. We see that from Paul. We see that from John. But there is also an Antichrist that is coming that will usher in the return of Christ and the end of the world. Now, why is this helpful for us to come to grips with? It's helpful because it leads us to come to an application to this morning's passage. Because if the purpose of this book, the purpose of the book of Revelation, is to equip the church to persevere during times of tribulation, and the war that Antichrist will inflict on the church is both now and not yet, then this means that we get to practice today that which we will need to practice tomorrow in order to persevere in the faith. But before we get to what our response needs to be to Antichrist, let's look at what the response is to Antichrist by the earth dwellers in John's vision. Picking up from the midway point of verse 3, John tells us that the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, 
That phrase, the whole earth, we need to clarify that. We know that it can't mean every single individual on the earth because that would include the saints, of which there are still many during this time. John later clarifies what he means by the whole earth in verse 8. There he says it includes everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, unbelievers who reject Christ, who don't call on Christ to rescue them from their sin and judgment deserved because of their sin. And so all unbelievers in the world, verse 3, marvel as they follow the beast. And then in verse 4, we're told that they also worship both, both the dragon and the beast. Why? Because the dragon gives his power, gives his authority to the beast. And so the, the beast is worshiped because of his power, because of his strength, because of his ability. And so they conclude at the end of verse 4, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And church, we know that those are words that only God deserves to hear. Who is like our God? And who can stand against him? Right? But these earth dwellers use these words and say them of the beast. Maybe they're impressed with the counterfeit counterfeit resurrection. This mortal wound has been miraculously healed. And they marvel at this and follow him and worship him. Maybe they're just awestruck by his power that's been given to him from Satan. Or maybe they are paralyzed in fear because of his ability to kill. But for whatever reason, they marvel at him, they follow him, and they worship him. We know that celebrity and popularity are in this world already the currency of power and influence. And so it's not a far stretch to think that one would be followed by so many like this. But as followers of Jesus, we are impressed with only one. We are impressed with Jehovah, our Lord and God. Listen to what the psalmist writes of him in Psalm 86. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Church, may we never be impressed with anyone other than our God and his son Jesus. Let us not turn aside to counterfeit gods or be impressed with other people because of their power or their strength or their ability or their influence. Let us hold unswervingly to what Jude calls the faith once delivered to the saints so that we are not swept away by false teachings of another one. We are impressed 
with only one. Now let's look briefly at the actions of the beast in John's vision in verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, the beast utters haughty and blasphemous words and he exercises authority for 42 months. There's that length of time again that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, whether it's referring to a literal three and a half years or figuratively, as I suppose, to a long time that is cut short. In verse 6, the words of blasphemy and slander are directed at God, His dwelling in heaven, and those who are with Him in heaven. And then in verse 7, we're told that the beast makes war on the saints, the church. He makes war on the church, and he is allowed to conquer them. And authority is given to this beast over every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. And then in verse 8, all of the earth dwellers worship him. And again, there's the clarification of who the earth dwellers are. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And by the way, parenthetically, notice when the names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Before the foundation of the world. If we ever fall victim to thinking that our salvation has anything to do with our merit, go back to that verse. Our names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. But these earth dwellers, their names are not written in that book. These are those who have not trusted in Christ for salvation. So consider the actions of the beast. Slander against God. Blasphemy against God and his people and his heaven. Warring against the church, against the saints. And conquering them, which means killing them. Exercising authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And making all the earth, all unbelievers, worship him. Some pretty nasty stuff. But the amazing thing about this part of the passage, and the thing that we really have to wrestle with, is that we see those divine passives again here. We've seen the divine passives all over the book of Revelation, and we see them again in this passage. The divine passives are a favorite literary tool of the Apostle John as he seeks to describe what he sees in these visions. He tells us that something happens, but he doesn't tell us explicitly who makes them happen. But we're meant to conclude that it is God who makes them happen. Though he is unseen and unidentified in these passages, over and over and over in the book of Revelation, John uses the divine passive to remind us who is pulling the strings behind the scenes. It's God. We see it in this passage as well. Look at verses 5 and following. Verse 5 says, And the beast was given. That's a divine passive. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. We're 
meant to conclude that he was given that mouth by God. So the slander, the slander of God is made possible by God as the one who gives this blasphemous and haughty mouth to the beast. And we should ask, why would God do this? Continuing in the next phrase of verse 5. And it, referring to the beast, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's another divine passive. So the authority that is exercised here, the authority over the earth dwellers, the authority that is exercised over every tribe, people, language, and nation, the authority with which the earth dwellers will be commanded to worship the beast, that authority is given by God. And we should ask, why would God do this? But that's not all God allowed. Look at verse 7. And it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Who allowed this to happen? Only one could allow this, and it is God. God allowed the beast to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and in many cases, kill them. And we should ask, why would God allow this? And as if that's not already difficult enough to comprehend, not only was the beast's authority allowed by God, but we're told at the end of verse 7 that it was given to him by God. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Again, that's a divine passive. Now we might say, well, wait a second, I thought the dragon gave the beast its power. He did. The dragon gave the beast his power. And I would submit to you that the dragon did not have the power and the authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. Only one does. The sovereign God. He gave that authority. Why does God do this? Why does he give the beast this haughty and blasphemous mouth with which he will slander God? Why does he give the beast the authority to make war on the saints? Why does he give the beast the allowance to conquer the saints? Well, church, this gets back to a theme that we've seen return to over and over throughout this book that God wills ordains and allows suffering and evil even in the lives of his children he does this for reasons that are far too high for us to grasp Deuteronomy 29 29 the secret things belong to the Lord our God the end of the day, God is God, and we are not. But though we cannot fully know his reasons for ordaining and allowing suffering and evil in the lives of his children, we can know his reasons in part. For we know Paul's promise to us in Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good 
for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, if you will, before the foundation of the world. God causes everything that happens to them to happen for our good and his glory. Everything God allows and everything he ordains and wills, even the suffering and evil that he allows or wills or ordains in our lives is for our good and his glory. How we piece that together is far beyond our ability to grasp. But in his economy, it is. This includes the suffering and evil in our lives today, whatever form they may be taking in your lives and mine. But it also includes the suffering and evil that the saints will endure when this beast is revealed. The final two verses of this section of chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, contain a warning and an exhortation. Here's where we come to the application of this passage. Verse 9 begins with saying, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. John is saying here, be warned, church. We have the privilege of being told ahead of time that this beast will be given authority. That this one, whatever form he takes, will be allowed to persecute the church and even conquer Christians and slay them by the thousand. John says, hear this with your ears, church. Don't ignore this warning. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. In other words, what God intends to happen to us will happen to us as he intends. Those who are to be taken captive will be taken captive. Those who are to be slain with a sword will be slain with a sword. In other words, just because the beast is given authority doesn't mean that our God surrenders his sovereignty. He is still in charge. And he will ensure that things happen exactly according to his plan. Which again we're told is for our good ultimately. And his glory. And John concludes verse 10 with this exhortation to his readers. Here. Here. Meaning everything that came before this. The reason it's given to us. It's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, since the suffering and evil is going to happen. And since it's happening now. And since everything that does happen happens exactly according to his sovereign plan, our part in the drama is to endure and remain faithful. That's it, church. To endure and remain faithful. To persevere and continue to believe and trust Christ through it all. And we shouldn't miss that this is a call that John places before the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Who are they? The saints are those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. The word saint literally means holy one, 
hagios, one who is holy. And so how are we made holy? Well, not by what we do, not by doing holy or trying to be holy. We are made holy only by coming to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. See, apart from Christ and his work on our behalf at Calvary, we are categorically unholy, stained by sin and and rebellion against God. And left in this condition, we deserve to be separate from God, both in this But God loved us too much to leave us in that cursed and unholy condition. And so by his grace and for his glory, he sent his son, his one and only son. And he sent him to earth to put on flesh and to live as one of us, to live the perfectly righteous life that we never could And then to go to the cross and die in our place. The holy for the unholy. And after he died on the cross, he rose from the dead three days later. Proving that he was the son of God. And proving that God had accepted that payment as sufficient payment for the sin and judgment of all those who would trust in him. But it's not enough for us just to know this. We must trust in this good news. We must trust in this Christ alone. And when we do, when we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross as our only hope for for the forgiveness of sins and, and, and the restoration of our relationship with our maker, then that's exactly what happens. Our sins are forgiven. The penalty is taken away because Jesus paid it at the cross. And we become sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. And our eternity with him is set forever. And so if you are not one of the saints to whom John is addressing this exhortation, you've never trusted in Christ to be made holy, not by your own efforts, but by the effort of Jesus Christ on your behalf. The encouragement to you this morning is that you can be holy, not by what you do or what you try to do, but by what Christ has done for you. And so your application to this text is to trust in Christ alone for rescue. But if you are one of those saints, if you are one who has, by God's grace, come to faith in Jesus as your only hope, then the encouragement here, in light of these very hard truths about this beast, about this antichrist, whether he is a world empire or an individual, whether he is now or not yet, in light of these truths about him, we are exhorted to endure and remain faithful, to endure hardship, to endure trial, to endure persecution, whether it happens today or whether it happens in our tomorrow, to endure and to remain faithful. This is why we talked about last week the fact that he's given us his spirit, he's given us his word, and he's given us his church. Why? So that we might endure and remain faithful for him to the very end. 
trusting in Christ, trusting in God, and trusting in the hope of the gospel. Trusting that everything that we do endure in this life and in the tomorrows that the church will face in the future, that everything that the church endures is for her good and our God's glory. And trusting that it won't last forever. Tribulation, suffering, persecution, trial, it is but for a time. It won't last forever because forever is already determined and it is his kingdom that is forever let's pray father i just want to pray lord for father for those souls that are among us in this very room that perhaps are hearing about judgment that is coming for sin and they're wrestling with that. Some may think it's unfair. God, show them that we don't, know, we don't want what's fair. We don't want you to be fair to us for what we deserve is eternal Judgment. Others may be wrestling with how awful that sounds. Judgment of sin for eternity. Father, in the quietness of their heart, may that person feel the weight of that. And in the next breath, hear that weight lifted. In the good news of Jesus, that you sent your son to take that judgment on the cross. And God, I ask that at this moment that you would give that person in the desperation of their soul faith in Jesus to trust in Christ alone, not in their own works, not in their ability to try to be good, not in their ability to try to be better than the next person, but to trust in Christ alone for rescue. God, would you bring them into the household of faith and make them worshipers of you, for we know you deserve their worship. And may they live the rest of their lives enduring and remaining faithful for your glory. And that's what we ask of us, Father, who carry in all humility the name of saint because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We ask, Father, that you would cause us to persevere, that you would cause us to endure and remain faithful. And Father, in those weak moments where we feel like we can't hold on to you any longer. Give us the assurance that you're holding on to us. Oh Lord, we thank you so much that the evil that we see in this world will one day be met with justice and we'll see you face to face. For now we ask that you would grant to us endurance to be faithful 
to the task that you set before us. Whether it is living lives of worship or taking this gospel to every tribe, language, people, and nation. Make us faithful, Lord, for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.